Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Kibatos podcast. My name is Carl Rylett and this is part 8 on the series of the First World War. It is entitled Countdown to Catastrophe. On the 20th of May 1910, Huge crowds, estimated at between 3 and 5 million, gathered on the streets of London. The mood was sombre for the occasion was the funeral procession of their king, Edward VII, who had passed away a few days before. Three days before the funeral, his coffin had been taken in procession to Westminster Hall, where there was a public lying in state. On the first day, thousands of members of the public queued patiently in the rain to pay their respects. Some 25,000 people were turned away before the gates were closed late in the evening. The funeral was the largest gathering of European royalty ever to take place, with representatives of 70 states, and was the last before many royal families were deposed in the First World War and its aftermath. Edward VII was related by ties of blood or of marriage, to most of the sovereigns of Europe, many of whom gathered for the funeral. Among the assembled dignitaries were the late king's nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, two of his brothers-in-law, the kings of Greece and Denmark, his nephew, the king of Norway, his nephew-in-law, the king of Spain, and various other members of the house of Saxe, Coburg and Gotha. Also present was Grand Duke Michael of Russia, a younger brother of the Russian Tsar Nicholas II, the late king's nephew, and also Archduke Franz Ferdinand, whose assassination would later go on to trigger the First World War. The gathering demonstrated how closely knit all the European royal families were. The year 1910 in Europe was relatively quiet politically, the calm before the storm in a continent which had seemed to be lurching from one crisis to another since the dawn of the 20th century. In London there was a general spirit of reconciliation, in particular between Britain and Germany, whose Emperor Wilhelm had been close to his late uncle and grandmother, Queen Victoria. However, tensions quickly ratcheted up the next year, when the great powers were in dispute over North Africa. The Balkans, soon after, descended into war, and the rest of Europe was not far behind. Unaware of what lay ahead, in many ways the people of Europe had good reason to feel pleased with the recent past, and confident about the future. 
the recent four decades had brought an explosion in wealth and well-being and a transformation in the way they lived. Thanks to better and cheaper food, improvements in hygiene and dramatic advances in medicine, Europeans were living longer, healthier lives. The population increased rapidly and was able to absorb the growth thanks to increased output in its own industry and agriculture and imports from around the world. Emigration acted as a safety valve from some of the poorer regions, as many Europeans moved to the United States, Canada, Argentina and Australia for a new life. Europe cities and towns grew as people moved from the countryside in increasing numbers in search of better opportunities in factories, shops and offices. As Europe's economy changed, governments and businesses realised they needed a better educated population and the late 19th century saw the spread of universal education and literacy. An increase in public libraries and adult education classes encouraged reading and publishers responded with comic books, pulp fiction, thrillers and adventure stories. And the circulation of the most popular newspapers reached over a million. Writes the author Margaret Macmillan in her book The War That Ended Peace Quote, All this contributed to widening the horizons of Europeans and also to making them feel part of larger communities than their ancestors would have done. Where at once most Europeans would have seen themselves as members of their village or town, they now increasingly felt themselves to be German or French or British, part of something called a nation. End quote. The first years was also a period of rapid technological change. Einstein developed his special theory of relativity, and Mary Curie made great strides in the understanding of radioactivity. Telephones, gramophones, motor vehicles, cinema performances and electrified homes became commonplace among affluent people in the world's richer societies. Meanwhile, better communications, including the new fast and cheap public post offices and the telegraph, brought Europeans into closer contact with each other, both within their own country and beyond. In the cities, the horse-drawn vehicles were gradually giving way to newer forms of transportation, such as electric trams. Railway and canal networks spread out across Europe and steamship lines crisscrossed the oceans. The spread of democracy and extension of voting rights meant that the public demanded more from their governments. Industries in Russia, France, Germany and Britain were all convulsed by frequent strikes. In Germany, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck pioneered the modern welfare state with such innovations as unemployment insurance and old age pensions in Germany in the 1880s. Before 1870, Russia, Prussia, Austria and France all carried about equal weight on the world stage behind Britain. From then on, Britain, which had been the world's first industrialised nation, saw its share of global manufacturing fall from one-third in 1870 to one-seventh in 1913. Meanwhile, the new unified Germany powered ahead, becoming recognised as by far the most successful continental nation, world leader in every industrial sphere from pharmaceuticals 
to automobile technology. Germany showed both the insecurities and ambitions of a rising world power. It was sensitive to criticism and endlessly concerned that it was not being taken seriously enough. In spite of its economic and military strength, it saw itself as being encircled. Many Germans came to the belief that the country's remarkable economic progress and advances in such areas as science ought to be matched by an increase in its standing in the world. For liberals this meant providing moral leadership, while for right-wing nationalists, and that included the Kaiser and his closest advisers, it meant increased political and military power. One of their central ambitions was to acquire further territories overseas, but Britain invariably raised objections. Relations between the two countries became strained as each suspected the motives of the other. A similar heightening of tensions occurred at the same time between Germany and Russia. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany came to the throne in 1888, and from then on, a younger generation of German politicians came to power imbued with a self-confidence in Germany's destiny and a disdain for the elaborate system of alliances set up by Bismarck. In truth, it was an increasingly difficult balancing act for Germany to stay on good relations with both Austria and Russia, given their differences in the Balkans region. In the year 1889, Wilhelm declined to renew a reinsurance treaty with Russia, signalling Wilhelm was opting for ties with Vienna in preference to St. Petersburg. In March 1890, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck resigned. Wilhelm was now his own master and that of Germany. He decided not to delegate his responsibilities to his Chancellor or Cabinet. Indeed, he increased the number of officials who reported directly to him and established a royal headquarters to supervise the military. The trouble was that he wanted the power and the glory without the hard work. He was both lazy and incapable of concentrating on anything for long and did not have the patience to get into the detail of policy. 
Moreover, he spent more than half his time during his reign away from Berlin on his palace in Potsdam. He loved to travel and visited his other palaces or friends' hunting lodges and took long cruises on one of his several yachts. Margaret Macmillan described Wilhelm as an actor who secretly suspected that he was not up to the demanding role he had to play. He tried perhaps too hard to show a forceful dominance which did not come naturally. Christopher Clarke, in his History of Prussia, highlights how fastidious Wilhelm was to his outward appearance, rapidly alternating uniforms and outfits to match specific occasions. He actively courted the public and was frequently filmed during public appearances and on family occasions. The aim was not only to draw attention to himself, although there is no doubt that he was a deeply narcissistic individual, but to fulfil the imperial promise of his office. He travelled across the empire, opening hospitals, christening ships, visiting factories, observing parades and giving speeches. Wilhelm's tendency to speak off the cuff created unnecessary diplomatic problems. For example, in 1896 he sent a telegram to the President of the African Republic of Transvaal, congratulating the Afrikaners for successfully defeating a band of British adventurers. This caused great consternation in London at the same time as Wilhelm was trying to build better relationships with the British. The Kaiser's erratic behaviour regarding the business of government and propensity to talk too much and without thinking created an impression of a dangerous and unpredictable Germany. This impression was further enhanced by the proliferation of military imagery which pervaded German public ceremonies. As an example, the German army was celebrated annually on the anniversary of the Battle of Sedan, 1870, that recalled the victory over France. The breakdown in Germany's relations with St. Petersburg compelled the Russian government to look elsewhere for an alliance. When the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway began in 1891, it was financed by France, marking the beginning of a Franco-Russian rapprochement. As ties between Paris and St. Petersburg grew closer, the Germans became increasingly alarmed at the prospect of military encirclement. It was this time when the first drafts of the Schlieffen Plan were drafted, battle plans based on the assumption that France would have to be defeated quickly in the event of war. Meanwhile, the long struggle for mastery in Central Africa reached its climax. Both Britain and France moved rapidly into the vacuum left by the Italian defeat of the Battle of Adowa in 1871, the collapse of the Egyptian Empire and the subsequent steady disintegration of the Mahdist state in Sudan. In 1898, a French explorer and army officer, Jean-Baptiste Marchand, was confronted by a much larger Anglo-Egyptian army led by British General Herbert Kitchener in the Upper Nile River Basin. In what became known as the Fashoda Incident, after the town at which it took place, there were concerns that the rivalry between the two powers for influence in the region could lead to war. But the French backed down, marking the beginning of closer relations 
between the two countries. Traditionally, the British had preferred not to tie themselves directly into any alliance with other European powers, but as tensions increased, they began to move away from their policy of splendid isolation. This culminated in 1904 with the Entente Cordiale of April 1904 between Britain and France. This was an understanding rather than a military alliance, and the details at first amounted to little more than a colonial deal, with Morocco falling to France, while Paris gave up on its share of Egypt. The Entente did not, as yet, involve any official cooperation between the two armies, still less concrete war plans against Germany in the lines of the Franco-Russian alliance. The agreement was followed by closer ties between London and St Petersburg. Their main area of rivalry was Asia, where after much negotiation a settlement was reached. The Russians accepted that Afghanistan was in the British sphere of influence and the British agreed not to occupy or annex the region. The other area of dispute, Persia, was divided with a Russian sphere of influence in the north and the British in the south to allow them to protect the Gulf and their routes to India. In the meantime, there was a growing understanding between the British and American governments, based partly on a sense of geopolitical common ground, but also on shared values. In contrast, Germany's global ambitions were causing anxiety in the United States, heightened when German ships began to patrol the Caribbean and South Atlantic from 1901. Berlin also refused to guarantee that she would not seek territorial aggrandizement in the American hemisphere. The new friendship between the French, British and Russians had profound implications for the European balance of power generally, and in particular for Germany. News of the Entente was greeted with consternation in Berlin and added to their sense of encirclement. One consequence was that the Germans strengthened their alliance with Austria-Hungary and so took on its quarrels in the Balkans, a highly volatile region where the Germans had no direct interest. Kaiser Wilhelm attempted to prise open the Entente Cordiale by putting pressure on France. In March 1905 he landed in Tangier and demanded an international conference to safeguard the integrity of Morocco, which the French were progressively turning into a protectorate. The British were forced to choose whether or not to back French ambitions. In the end they supported Paris and allowed the French to be put in charge of the Moroccan police. Germany's strategy to break open the ring of encirclement had merely welded the links closer together. The key factor in understanding the growing hostility between Britain and Germany was a naval race which took place between the two. Britain had long ago established dominance of the seas. Under leadership of the Admiral of the Fleet, Jackie Fisher, they continued to strengthen their navy. In 1906, they launched a brand new type of warship, the Dreadnought, which was big, fast and deadly. Weighing 18,000 tonnes, they could race at speeds of 21 knots with the newly invented turbine engines, and they carried 10 12-inch guns, as well as a battery of smaller guns, 
mounted on turrets. However, at the beginning of the century, British naval supremacy was beginning to be challenged by the Germans, who felt an increasing need to catch up as befitted their status as a great power. The objective of their Grand Admiral, Alfred von Tirpitz, was to try and put Britain in a position where the cost of attacking Germany at sea would be too high. Once Germany had achieved a position of strength, the British would be made to realise that they would have no choice but to come to an agreement and perhaps even join the Triple Alliance with Germany, Austria and Italy. However, the policy of trying to intimidate the British into an alliance had the exact opposite effect, making them fearful of German ambitions and pushing them away into closer friendship with France and Russia. British planners assumed that, whatever the official line from Berlin, the German fleet was designed for action in the North Sea, and this they could not accept because of geography. A strong German fleet in the Baltic, or German North Sea coast, was too much of a risk to the defence of Britain's coastline. At the same time, the Germans were also expanding their army. Europe's population growth and industrial revolution had made it possible to have bigger armed forces. Prussia had been the first to exploit the potential, using conscription to take recruits out of civil society and give them several years of military training. It then returned its trained soldiers to civilian life, but kept their skills sharp by putting them in reserves, where they did periodic training. In 1897, Germany had 545,000 soldiers in uniform, but another 3.4 million who could be called back to the army. The other continental powers had little choice but to follow suit. Only Britain, thanks to the protection of the seas and its navy, was able to stay with a small volunteer army. Military technology was also fast advancing and making war far more deadly. With advances in metallurgy, guns were stronger, more durable, and with new types of explosives, they fired much further. By the year 1900, rifles were accurate and lethal, up to a kilometre, and new machine guns could fire hundreds of rounds a minute. Heavy field artillery now had a range of 10 kilometres. That meant attackers would have to survive several kilometres of shell fire, then several hundred metres of intense rifle and machine gunfire on their way towards the enemy. Warnings that such changes would give the advantage to defence and likely bring about stalemate on the battlefield were ignored by military planners who anticipated any conflict with the new heavy weaponry would be brief. In 1911, France occupied the city of Fez in Morocco at the request of the Sultan and in response to escalating civil unrest. Germany, who were in competition with France for influence in the region, decided to make one last attempt to break open the ring of encircling powers and demanded compensation. When, at the beginning of July, the armed cruiser, the Panther, appeared off the Moroccan coast of Agadir to back up the German claims, the result, just as in 1905, was to drive France and Britain closer together. Berlin was forced to accept a French protectorate in Morocco, in return for territory in West Africa. In truth, it was a humiliating climb down for the Kaiser. 
With diplomatic failures elsewhere, the government in Berlin turned to the Ottoman Empire. For years, Kaiser Wilhelm had been building relations with Constantinople. In 1898, he had visited key cities in the Turkish and Arab provinces, and famously pledged Germany's perpetual friendship to the Ottomans. Ties improved further when Germans helped with the construction of a railway across Turkey to Baghdad. In 1913, the Ottoman government requested Berlin to provide a military mission to help train and reorganise its army. The Germans agreed and sent over a detachment of 40 officers under the command of General Lehmann von Sanders. In principle, there was nothing particularly unusual about the agreement, but because of such heightened tensions in Europe, it triggered a major diplomatic incident between Berlin and St. Petersburg. The Russians found the idea of Germans in control of the Straits intolerable and threatened to occupy the Ottoman Black Sea port of Trabzon in retaliation. Berlin backed down and moved the general to a less influential position. Then, as war raged in the Balkans in 1912 to 1913, the likelihood of a larger scale conflict seemed in the public mind to be increasing. In France, the question of Alsace-Lorraine, lost to the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, shot back to the top of the agenda. In January 1912, Raymond Poincaré was elected Prime Minister of France with a mandate to face down Germany. In Germany, the humiliation of the Moroccan crisis of 1911 provoked a barrage of popular and parliamentary assaults on the weakness of imperial foreign policy. On the other hand, there was much public concern that Germany was vulnerable to attack from Russia and criticism of wasting resources on frivolous colonial adventures. In Russia too, impatience with the Tsar's foreign policy was growing and there were calls for an increase in resources for the army needed to defend Russian ambitions in the Balkans and Central Europe. War appeared to increasing numbers of men in the political elites of European nations as a kind of release, a resolution to all the doubts and uncertainties, a chance to do something glorious. Well before August 1914, the outbreak of a general war was widely anticipated across Europe, hoped for by some, feared by others. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week I will talk about the infamous assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and how that triggered the great powers to descend into the awful conflict known as World War I. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye.